You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. talking about the Cajun culture today in, in a lot of different ways. Our guest is Connie Castile, who's on the, uh, the faculty at ULL. She's on the faculty. She is a senior instructor in moving image arts, which means, first of all, it's a cool title. I mean, I'd like, I'd like to have a title myself. It was when she deals with movies and documentaries and you know, things on the internet, but, but, but certainly those kind of visual things. And we're going to talk about uh, some of the documentaries or that she's worked on and or, or is working on. Uh, some have been shown on Louisiana Public Broadcasting in different places. And so it's a pretty impressive collection. Uh, hi, Connie. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay. Now, Connie's a native, now she's technically not Cajun, which is from Bro Bridge. Which oh, I'm Cajun. Cajun, I'm Cajun. That's right, on your mother's side, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> but, then, but then being from Bro Bridge, that adds a few more points um, also from from Ponth Bro. Um, well, let me talk about some of the documentaries uh, that you've done. Uh, I mean, it's just a medley. It's a bunch of different topics. Um, let's start talking about the horses, the roaming horses. Mm -hmm. That documentary is called Tigalo, a Louisiana horse story. And it's um, kind of when it, the film opens up, we're kind of placed in a historic context. And it was a way to explain why we have all these horseback traditions that you kind of see all over the, the prairies and the swamps of Acadiana, um, which, you know, if you think about all the Cajun jockeys that uh, end up winning a lot of Kentucky Derby races, to the Black Creole trail rides, to our country Mardi Gras that's on horseback, to the Tournois that takes place in Ville Platte. Um, as uh, growing up in Brobridge, I kept seeing all these um, activities, seeing people just ride, black cowboys riding down Brobridge on their horses on a Sunday. And it, it just always piqued my interest. And then studying folklore, I eventually really looked into it and to understand why do we have, you know, Creoles um, and Cajuns having a lot of fun with their horses. And it all went back to, you know, the cattle industry when the Acadians arrived and were given uh, land and cows to go and ranch to feed New Orleans. And so with that came horses. Yeah, you didn't, you didn't jump on a, a you know, a four-wheeler to go get your horses. What, what was going on is you had all of this prairie grass. Um, so where your, your um, cattle could, they called it roaming or large they weren't bound by fences. They weren't fenced in. So they could graze. You didn't, it, it was really cheap to have cattle. You didn't have to own a lot of land like you would if you were going to farm like cotton or cane. This, it was like an equal opportunity uh, for, for people that just didn't have land. So that's why branding was so important. So you would brand your, your animals. And then, you know, when it was time, you'd bring them all in, um, the new calves would be branded. Any any of the cat, cattle that was ready for slaughter would be sent off, and um, so that's 
you know, kind of why we have all these horses, you needed horses to go get the cattle and round them up. And then eventually, because of kind of the Cajun and Creole ethos of having a good time and passing a good time, it was a just a matter of time that they started having fun with these animals. Uh, thus the bush track racing, racing them, trail rides. Um, the tournois is, is a old uh, medieval uh, jousting um, entertainment that they do in Ville Platte. So it, it's kind of interesting to see it all set. And, and of course, the classic is the Courier de Mardi Gras. With the, That's right. Everybody on horses going from place to place. Yeah. Do they, do they have, do they still have horses that are just roaming free now? Um, I don't think so. Um, you know, wild horses, mm, I doubt it. I doubt it. If so, it would probably, probably, probably be uh, marsh horses, like maybe closer to the Gulf there. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it's not so much a, um, a big thing these days, I guess. Uh, horses are owned and uh, accounted for. They, you know, and the, the horses, it was really the cattle that were roaming uh, au large, you know, and again, you could identify yours with a brand and the branding books were were very important because they showed ownership of your cattle. So, actually, it's not enough land to have horses roaming free. I mean, you gotta kind of pull them in. Like in Arizona, or is it um, in Arizona, Utah? They do have places where there are there are mustangs out, out there. Mm -hmm. uh, you have miles and miles and miles of, of land, you know, and, and you can see little pockets of these horses running, uh, you know, just running loose. Right. I went to Cumberland Island um, and they were wild horses there. So they do exist. <laughs> okay. All right. So that's really an interesting uh, uh, topic. All right. There's one that's a little sad, but it's very important. It was one you call the Quiet Cajuns. Tell us about that. Yeah, the Quiet Cajuns. Um, there is a genetic quirk amongst the Cajuns and it's called Acadian Usher syndrome. And um, basically that's tied to what we call the founder effect. When a clan is geographically isolated and the gene pool is just not as diverse. So when the Acadians were uh, exiled from Nova Scotia, there were apparently some carriers of that gene that arrived in Louisiana. And again, they arrive in Louisiana, they're again geographically isolated. So again, you're gonna have that that um, gene pop up fre frequently. Um, we have the largest deafblind population here in South Louisiana in the country and second in the world. So really? you're, you're basically, uh, you're born deaf and then you start to lose your vision. It starts kind of your peripheral vision starts to kind of close in and then um, eventually you become profoundly blind as well, as well. And in your documentary, there's just some very moving scenes of this young family. They have a young boy who mm -hmm. has that, and uh, and you can just you just feel for the mother, in particular, you see on camera. I mean, she's so dedicated, but you can also tell that there's a lot of hurt there too. Yeah, she's concerned. She, um, we have two generations depicted in the documentary. One is an older gentleman that. Um, when he was born, they didn't even know he was deaf until he was about a year and a half. And he's uh, probably 61 now. And then we have the younger boy who 
has cochlear implants, so he's immersed into the hearing world. But again, that blindness is kind of, you know, inevitable. And then we also introduce to the audience um, a scientist out of LSU New Orleans who's having a lot of success uh, doing research on uh, mice that she works with. She calls them her Acadian mice, actually. And so there's, there's hope, you know, that there will be some way to um, work that out over time. Now, whether that, when that will be, we don't know. <laughs> Was this related to the same reason that, that interfamily marriages have always been discouraged, not just in Cajuns, but in general? Is it that same thing, same type of thing? Probably marrying distant cousins, you know, again, that, that gene pool is just not diverse. You, it, it's not um, incestless, you know, we don't want to use that word, but it's certainly uh, marrying another Cajun, basically. So, um, it, it's if you are in love with a Cajun and you're Cajun and you want to have children, it would be something you might want to think about. They've always been like groups of people and they're, they're isolated. And, and so mm -hmm. the people that they know are, are each other. It's not, that, it's not about insight, it's just who right. you know and, you know, the, uh, that sort of thing. Wow. That's right. That's right. And, um, but, you know, it's, it's a, it, it's still, you know, the mother says in the end, if you remember, she says, you know, I used to worry about a cure. I used to worry about all these things. And now I just, I just want him to be happy. And um, you can certainly see he's happy in the, in the film, so. Yeah, that was very touching. And this, you know, they, uh, a birthday party. Yeah. And, uh, and she said like, it's, it's his day, you know, anything he wants and you know, anything to be enjoying the day. But, but as of now, there's still no, no cure for it or any, preventive measure or anything no no there is not i mean other than you know having the option if you know that your child will lose two of their senses you know usually parents with a child that has a cadian usher they're more likely probably to give them cochlear implants um so that you know they know they're going to lose their vision later and that's what this mother decided to do these parents Okay. And you say Louisiana is top in the nation and and second in the world for deaf blind. Yeah. Well, you you think there'd be maybe there is, I'm just not aware of it, some sort of a major institute or hospital or something in Louisiana that specializes yeah. in that. Well, it's it's still considered an orphan disease. It doesn't impact that much of the population. And so, you know. The pharmaceutical companies aren't that eager to spend money on that um, because it's an orphan disease. But I'm with you. It's such a it's such a drastic and dramatic loss of two significant senses that it seems like that would outweigh the, the population that it would impact. Yeah, well, it's very fascinating, and, and I'm glad you've you've put that so people can learn more about it. It's something. Right, right. I didn't know about it. And when I learned about it, I, that's when uh, it stunned me. And I was like, well, if I'm from Brobridge and Cajun and I didn't know about it, I'm sure there's a lot more people that. Is there one area that's more prone to it, like in, in Acadiana, or is it just. No, no. no. Okay. okay, let's go to uh, more of an upbeat topic. You, you do a thing, which I got to tell you, you affected 
my lunch today. Uh oh. Uh, <laughs> what do you want to know? And you'll see how in a moment. But one of them you did about rice and gravy. Oh, and rice and gravy is a big staple, and, and and you got these clips in like this restaurant, and these mm -hmm. people were like, what, they're making a chicken dish, and then and then the way they transfer, they got a big pot and make the gravy. Yeah. Um, so why? So what's, why is rice and gravy so popular? Well, the name of that documentary is called Raised on Rice and Gravy. So a lot of us around here and, you know, I mean, New Orleans, red beans and rice, of course, was a was a uh, um, a dish on Mondays, right? Because that's usually when they were doing all the washing and, you know, you could put that on the stove and, and let it cook. But um, but in other parts of the country, it's called meat plus two, meat plus three. But here in South Louisiana, um, we're such foodies that uh, we call it rice and gravy. And, you know, in the old days, it was your main meal. You, you worked outside, you worked on the farm, you did a lot of hard labor, and lunchtime was your biggest meal because you needed it. Well, you know, today we don't really do that. And what I love about the film is we go into these plate lunch houses around Lafayette, and um, you have the people that are working you know, the blue collar jobs, sweating, working outside. And then, but you also have the doctors and the lawyers that are in, you know, people that are professors that are doing inside work. Um, but we're all sharing this meal. And I, I also call it beyond necessity because um, it's a lot of food. <laughs> when we started making the film, um, my cinematographer and I, Allison Bowl Dehart, you know, we, we go, they wanted to feed you, you know, you'd go to one plate lunch house and film the lunch crowd arriving. And then before we'd leave, they, you had to eat. So we'd eat, then we'd go to the other plate lunch house to catch the crowd, that crowd. And as you know, the restaurant's closing, then they wanted us to eat. So we gained a lot of weight making that movie, but it was- Let me just qualify a point just from when I was a kid. That's a real trait. Anywhere you go, you gotta eat. Yeah. One, two, and nine. And That's, if you don't eat, you've really hurt their feelings. <laughs> absolutely. My grandmother, you know, she only spoke French, but, you know, mange, mange. If you weren't eating, you, you were going to die, you know, as a little yeah. kid. They just, it was a way to nurture, you know, it was a nurture. Yeah. So again, it's beyond, it, it's more food than your body needs. It's a, but it's not about that. It's comfort food. It's, it's nurturing. And, it, it, you know, that's kind of why we do it. So. Well, yeah. the real staple is, is the basic rice and gravy, the you know, rice with either a, a brown gravy, I guess from beef or, mm -hmm. or I guess with an amber color gravy from, uh, from chicken. And, and when the gravy is done right, and when the rice is done right, and you got a little salt in it, that can really be good. Oh yeah, it's very good. <laughs> and of course, how many starches, starches do we need? You got the rice, you got the potato salad, you got the bread, <laughs> doesn't get better than that. I think it's becoming a lost dish, though. I don't think people eat as much rice and gravy per se anymore. One, I think pasta has really kind of pushed it over a bit. Yeah. And with pasta, you talk about a different type of sauce altogether. But somebody just doing rice and gravy, man. But it's, um, yeah, it's a big deal still around here. I mean, we we had gotten a grant, I, you know, for it, and um, so I just looked at the Lafayette area of plate lunch houses. But I went, you know, my, my research brought me to like all of them. And then four was selected to kind of represent the whole plate lunch culture. 
and then that's the four that we go to and um and all but there's a lot of plate lunches and you can really can't get a bad plate lunch i don't think <laughs> but in new orleans if you go to a place in order a plate lunch i don't think they have rice and gravy no new orleans um you know it, it's not really like boudin plate lunches aren't that popular it's more of a um acadian cajun creole thing down here well i had a i went to college at mcneese mm -hmm. uh, and uh, I had a roommate from um, Bill Platt. And sometimes at night, he'd go into a rice and gravy withdrawal. He's oh, wow. moaning, oh, I need some rice and gravy. <laughs> and like if it was Thursday night and he knew the next day he was going back home for the weekend to, to Bill Platt, he was so anxious and the rice and gravy withdrawal was starting to act up. I never <laughs> had it that bad, but how you affected me today there's a little deli here in the building where we are. And today's special was beef stew. And it said beef stew, rice and gravy, and salad. It actually oh. said rice and gravy. And I really didn't feel like the beef stew too much. And uh, but man, the word, because I, I just looked at your little segment right before I went. I was really mm -hmm. So the rice and gravy was really planted in my, my brain. So I got it. And I hardly ate any of the beef. It was just a chewing on that. But man, I said, I scuffed up all the rice and gravy, you know, just good, rich and flavorful. That is nice. It was announced this week that uh, a plan, I think Superior Rice is, mm -hmm. is gonna build somewhere, like I think around Ville Platte, they're gonna build a plant for parboiled rice. And so it's like halfway cooked. Uh, yeah. You know, the rice that you buy is, is partially cooked and then you put it in water for a shorter period of time. But they're building a big parboiled rice plant there. If you have like 900 employees. Right, right. So that's pretty. Well, you know, Acadiana, you have Crowley, the rice capital, um, all those rice mills that are beautiful. Yeah. Um, is it? And then, you know, if you're not doing rice, you use that same field and you, you have your crawfish ponds. So we've, they figure out how to kind of uh, use the pond for both purposes, the crawfish and the, and the rice. We have a little interlude here. We do a little thing called this and that, in which we call on our executive producer, Kelly, to ask you to make some choices. Uh -oh. If you make the wrong choices, it was $500 for every wrong choice. Okay. Uh -oh. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we make our money, keep, keeping things alive. All right. So the, we've been talking a lot about rice. So the first one is etouffee or jambalaya? Etouffee. Oh, okay. Usually, I feel like usually people say jambalaya. No, I, I'm not a jambalaya. I, I, I can see it too. Yeah, but yeah. Really, I mean, you got a good crawfish thing and you got a, a good sauce and all yeah, that. Don't forget, I'm from the capital, the crawfish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. No, I, I couldn't disagree with that. <laughs> okay. Um, chicken and sausage or seafood gumbo? Seafood. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's interesting because, you know, where I'm from, it's more of the swamp Cajuns, right? So we had access to seafood. We didn't, you know, our fresh sausage. And the people up in Ville Platte on the prairies, they had the, uh, they had cattle and they, so seafood gumbo wasn't popular for them because it's about what you have access to, right? And they have the smoked meats. We would, we didn't have smoked meats. We never would put that in our gumbos. They called our fresh sausage, green sausage. And then we didn't call their sausage anything because we didn't know about it. <laughs> Bill Platt was referred to as the prairie. Yeah, that's prairie. Yes, that, that's prairie gumbo with the uh, 
um, with the meats and all that. So. Well, speaking of sausage, <laughs> boudin or andouille? Boudin. Mm -hmm. Probably for the same reasons, because it's what I grew up with. Yeah. I agree. And also, boudin is, is Cajun and andouille is German. So it's a real. <laughs> well, but boudin, boudin has its French influence too, you know? Yeah. Fresh sausage and. So. I do is more along the river parishes where the uh, where you had German settlements, with, but it's becoming more and more popular. Anyway, okay. Yeah. Um. So in your gumbo, are you doing rice or potato salad? Um. Okay. Of course you're going to put rice, but then you're going to have your potato salad on the side, and you're going to or a sweet potato. We we're that's going to be my next question. <laughs> take your spoon and you scoop a little of the potato salad or the sweet potato and you put it in the bowl with your rice and you eat it like that. Mm -hmm. So okay. it, it, this is a, an important topic to me. The um because you know there there are places in this world where people have never heard of of uh sweet potato and gumbo. Mm -hmm. and okay. And even fewer people have heard of potato salad and gumbo. Yeah. But they're both yeah we do yeah Especially the sweet potato because it kind of has it's a little bit sweeter, has a little bit of a, exactly. a sweet kind of kind of action. But it yeah. goes really well together, you know. Yeah. Uh, when when I was growing up, you know, this idea of sweet and savory combination, we would get our boudin, and then you had your Evangeline made bread. You take the meat out of the casing, spread it on your bread, and put steamed syrup on it. Oh my God! Mm. It's so delicious. Is that legal? Okay. <laughs> Okay, so when we get this, okay, you get Evangeline made bread, like this is a standard white bread, uh -huh. and a piece of boudin, mm -hmm. squeeze the meat out of the casing, and then put steamed syrup. Correct. Wow. <laughs> and look what they're doing now. They have these king cakes that are uh, sweet and savory, right? The yeah. boudin stuffed, you know, king cakes with um, syrup or whatever, the icing. And how do you eat it? Do you roll it up and eat it like you're eating a, a hot dog or something? or? Well, you can put it, you know, kind of half the bread or put two slices and stick all that in the middle. <laughs> oh my God. Doesn't matter. <laughs> well, I'll have to try that. That's I know, that sounds very yep. good. Might have to have a an excursion <laughs> for our next one. <laughs> you go buy a uh, boudin around here. They usually throw a slice of white bread in with your boudin. Okay. Are you familiar with a, a store called, I think it's called Best Stop? Uh-huh, Best Stop. Well, uh, Best Stop, isn't Scott, you know, Scott is the Buddha capital. Yeah. And the uh, the representative that proposed it for legislation to declare it such, he went in with all his data, all the crunched all the numbers, how many pounds of Buddha are sold in this town called Scott. Um, you know, and he proved by pound and by dollar why it should be the the and by the way, it's the Buddha capital of the universe, not the yeah. world. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> declaration. Well, one time a few years ago, we're coming from somewhere and we went to stop there. We've heard about it. This mm -hmm. on a Sunday afternoon, the parking lot was like the parking lot of the Saints game on a Sunday. I mean, it was like people from, you know, from all over Acadiana come uh, to buy that. But anyway, there's a little store, there's a little restaurant on Veterans Highway in New Orleans, and it's called The Store. Uh, and it's these guys, I think, from Donaldsonville. And they sell that kind of food, but they carry items from uh, Best Stop there. Mm -hmm. So I actually have access to mm -hmm. them. They have a freezer you can go and you can get them. So. Yeah. 
we have a, a history professor here, um, Bob Carricker, and he started a website called Boudin Link. And he basically travels uh, Louisiana, but mostly Acadiana, because that's where the Boudin is, and rates the Boudin. And he has such measurements as crispy casing or not, uh, liver or not, meat to rice ratio. So it's fascinating. You should stick that in your search engine and, and see what he has. Well, actually, we know he also do Louisiana Life. And we've used him a couple of times to do a best Boudin. Yeah, and he has a he has a book too, uh, and then now there's the Boudin tour, you know. Okay, I think we also did the best crack ones with him too. But anyway, <laughs> all right, we'll have more. I just have one more question. We want to know what your favorite Cajun phrase or saying is. Oh, okay. I would say "Megade <laughs> don." Um, what does that mean? Look at that, like man. Well, you know, again. Growing up, my parents spoke French. My one of my grandmothers only spoke French, so I learned it just by ear. So I never really don't know the translation as far as how you would write it. But we knew these words in context, right? So we knew we, we used the uh, phrases properly, and that's why you kind of have a little uh, English and French spoken around here mm -hmm. by a lot of people. But there, there are some communities like particularly Cecilia, I would say that a lot of young people still speak French. And of course we have the French immersion and also, but you know, for my generation, it was not something they, they thought it would be um, more progressive to um, kind of protect us because they had been punished, right? For speaking French. So unfortunately I'm that skip generation, but, but yeah, God they don't. And it usually it's kind of used when somebody does something kind of stupid, like, oh, well, look at that, you know? So. Or, or God, stop. Watch that, God, God. yeah. <laughs> there was, maybe you remember a singer, Jimmy C. Newman. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, Jimmy C. Newman, and he was out of, uh, not rain, but from around there. Happyville, and, I believe. Anyway, he had a song, I, I don't think it was original to him, but he certainly popularized it called Lash Pa La Patat. Uh huh. I think it means something along the lines of like, don't throw the potato or being. Yeah, the potato. Of like, yeah, uh, and don't drop it, basically. Um, but uh, we have uh, a lot of the younger generation of uh, Cajun musicians, and they put out a new album using his his songs, and it's kind of nice to see. You know, they, they remix it. They kind of add their own thing to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, they do the same thing with the archives here at the Center for Louisiana Studies. So they, you know, really use it, listen to these old traditional songs and then make it their own. So it's really cool to see that that's happening. But I thought I'd be asked callers first or, or not, because one of my documentaries is called I Always Do My Callers First. And the reason it's called that is because the women in the film strongly believe that you always start with your collar first. <laughs> but I know it kind of becomes a... Well, that, that's what I was going to ask you about. So, so why do they do the college first? That's what they believe. That's basically what the, how they learned really from their oh. mother that to do the college first. But you know, when interviewing all these women, everyone well, first you start with your collar, you know. And it was so you're talking about like an ironing of it, or oh, ironing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Do people still iron? Um, yeah, Cadians, Cajuns do. <laughs> I think um. 
when you see the film, it, it's really um, probably a socioeconomic um, phenomenon in the sense that, you know, the, the Cajuns, like other groups, didn't have a lot of money. Um, but as long as you were clean and pressed, you know, you could go anywhere. It was, it was an act of nurturing and pride. Uh, and, you know, as long as you're, you're, I always felt like the mother, um, the interior of the home was her domain and ironing was a way that when the, her children or her husband left the house, how they looked reflected on her as a mother or as a wife. Um, for men, I would think for Cajuns, and particularly that lawn, you know, Cajuns love a manicured lawn and it's kind of the male equivalent that it represents, um, you know, they're in charge of the home, the exterior of the home. And I'll, we've always felt that that was kind of a, a, a parallel between the two, but the ironing film does, it's, it follows four Cajun women and they talk about what ironing means to them. What do they think about when they iron? Why do they iron? And all of that. I remember one time talking to a man from uh, Jamaica and he was saying like the typical, not the affluent, but the typical Jamaican. He said, the man might only have one shirt, but it's a very good shirt. Mm -hmm. And he takes good care of it. When he gets home, he washes it and yeah, and they iron everything. And yeah. so it's always kept yeah, in the best condition. Absolutely. And one of the women says that, you know, growing up, we didn't have a lot of clothes, but what we had, we took care of. So. Mm. I think the era of permapress sort of like lowered the standards a little sure. bit. Sure, sure. There's, you can buy a lot of stuff that doesn't need ironing. Yeah. Um, you had one about a, a family. By the way, let me tell listeners, we're talking to Connie Castillo, who's out of ULL. She's an instructor there, and she does... Um, one of her specialties is the Cajun culture and doing things like movies and, and documentaries and really interesting stuff you have here. But you have one about a family, a couple, who I took it to be like maybe around their 90s called the Roby Shows. I don't know what, I'm not sure about that. I oh. did, do, um, uh, we did produce a film for Vermilionville called Why We Dance. And there's an older Cajun couple in there that talks about it. That might've been it, all right. They're not Roby shows, no. Okay. The other one we did was King Crawfish about- um, Oh yeah, tell, tell us about the crawfish. Yeah, so that film uh, looks at the Crawfish Festival Association that puts on the Brobridge Crawfish Festival. And they were celebrating their anniversary, their 50th year. And um, then we also meet the crawfishermen out of the Chafalaya Basin. So the wild caught crawfish and learn about what's going on in the basin and how um, their livelihood is going. And so we kind of go back and forth between the festival, learn about, I was always amazed about, you know, how do these traditions, the responsibility of these traditions get um, continued. So if you're saying at the Crawfish Festival or any festival, and you know, we have a lot of festivals <laughs> in Louisiana, we are celebrating our food, our language, our culture, our dancing, all of that. So, you know, there has to be some um, authenticity to what we're portraying right up on stage. Um, and it's a lot of work and it, it, it's a lot of integrity that goes into it. So we kind of meet, we meet the board of directors and we kind of see how they set up for the festival. And then we go and we watch the crawfishmen prepare for their harvest. So we just go back and forth with, with that. And um, it's pretty, pretty cool. Hi. The, um 
the whole crawfish, not saying revival, maybe like the boom, started maybe like in the 70s. Um, like people used to eat shrimp more than they ate crawfish. And I think when shrimp got really, really expensive, crawfish became more popular, you know, less expensive. Yeah, what was what was interesting about crawfish is that um, the crawfish festival, it, it was really um, an anniversary of the founding of Brobridge, but and they they boiled some crawfish and then they can they said, well, you know, let's just keep doing this year after year, but it preceded a harvest. Whereas you had the oldest festival, the shrimp and petroleum festival, and it was celebrating the harvest. Sugarcane festival celebrates a harvest, the rice festival celebrates the harvest, etc. But the crawfish, if you were still embarrassed, that was poor people food. You were eating something that was coming out of the mud. So, you know, um, one of um, Marjorie Essman, an anthropologist and lawyer, she's a lot of things, but she did her dissertation on the crawfish festival. And when I was doing my research, I came across her paper and in her paper, she said, this is something different. This is about cultural identity. This is not about celebrating a harvest. And then fast forward to today, what is Louisiana symbol? Uh, it's either the fleur-de-lis or the crawfish, right? So she, she was onto something there and that it really did do that. My, uh, my mother's family were victims of the great flood of 1927. And um, they were in the Royals Parish and they had to move away. Anyway, you know, relatives told the story when they finally got back to the house, everything had been flooded and everything was money. And the water was drawing crawfish out of the holes. And so there was crawfish all over, which they were very disappointed with because they didn't really eat crawfish. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it wasn't really, it was, uh, they ate pork and they ate chicken and they ate uh, some fish. Uh, but that's all they had. And yeah. so they gathered the crawfish and they put it in pots and they boil it in salt. Salt, they didn't have all that seafood boil that we, um, that we have now. Right. So it was kind of a, a letdown. So, um, um, I know a few years ago, um, a lake in Michigan had an invasive crawfish species and um, they didn't know what to do with it. And so Lafayette Tourism went up there and uh, basically showed them how to boil it, how to eat it, how to make etouffee. Uh, they brought uh, Cajun music to them. So it, it was, it was kind of neat to, to say, okay, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a big step if they get them to suck the heads. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm in Michigan, okay. That's um, I'm suspicious sometimes, like if you go to a restaurant and the etouffees, that, that they may be coming like from China. I mean, I mean, obviously, the boil crawfish. Is. Well, Louisiana does have a law. If you ask, they have to tell you. So, um, and you know, the Chinese crawfish—they're very clever. Uh, they have a very—they have a Cajun name on that label. So you really have to, um, you know, you just—it might say Boudreaux or whatever it says. So you assume it's Cajun, but you got to read closer and and see. And the price will indicate that it's not. I mean, the Chinese crawfish is half the price. Um, so. I think one thing I'd really kind of put Cajun cooking on the map, and, and you know, I tend to be kind of New Orleans-centric in my thinking about these things, was Paul Prudhomme. Mm -hmm. uh, and Paul Prudhomme became a big deal. And he created what I call Nouveau, Nouveau Cajun, the new kind of 
like Cajuns before Paul, Paul Prudhomme didn't eat everything hot and spicy. And he made it hot and spicy. Yeah. And so to the point where it became identified with being hot and spicy. So that when Al Copeland started Popeyes uh, and called it Cajun style, Cajun style meant it was spicy. So, mm -hmm. so it, almost, it almost changed the definition. Yeah, when I travel, I'm always curious, uh, you know, like Cajun whatever on the menu or Cajun whatever in the name of the restaurant. Yeah. So um, I like to go spy in and see how accurate it is or yeah. authentic. Well, speaking of spicy, we have a, just a couple of quick song clips here. And mm. one of them may be a surprise, maybe it's not, I don't know. But first of all, the classic song in Cajun music, the song that's considered to be the the Cajun anthem is uh, Jolie Blanc, mm -hmm. which was done by a, a man named Harry Choates. Uh, he was out of uh, Rain, Louisiana. Uh, it was, I don't know if he wrote it, but it was, he certainly popularized it. It was a, it was a, a waltz song, a, you know, fiddle on the waltz kind of song. And uh, so, and, and this is the first recording of Jolie Blanc. This is like way back, maybe in the 1920s. So it's not going to be, perfect clarity, but here's a little bit of Harry Chose's version. So that song still prevails. And um, Magnesia University developed a, like a March time version of that. And like that's the fight song at Magnesia. And so- Oh yeah. Uh, you refer to that as the Cajun uh, anthem. Yeah. Now here's something I discovered, maybe everybody knows except me, but I was really surprised to find this. This is a version that was done in 1981. And see if you can guess who this is. Nope, I'd have no idea. <laughs> I'm stumped. You know, okay. That is Bruce Springsteen. Oh. And uh, it's very Bruce Springsteen-like, you know? So anyway, I thought that was pretty incredible. He did that in 1981, and hmm. a, a, a full version of it. Um, well, this has been, um, been fascinating. Uh, thank you very much. Anything else you're working on? Anything you have that we can buy or anything like a, a book or a... A CD or that, or that bicycle behind you or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, we're uh, we are starting a new documentary um, about Creole and free people of color architecture. Uh, 
and this will this will be um, uh, the Louisiana Architecture Foundation is uh, putting that together, and we're working with them to produce that. And hopefully, that should come out probably uh, next May, so in about a year. So, really is there? Fun. That sounds like a New Orleans thing. Is that? Primarily where it's found, or is it? Primarily, um, but we also, you also have um, free people of color and Creole architecture in around New Roads, uh, Natchitoches, New Orleans, of course, um, Avoyles Parish. Yeah, so. Is there any one building that's statewide? Okay, but if somebody was driving around the state, is there like one building that, could, that kind of stands out or? Oh, I, I would just go to New Orleans. That's probably where you see the most of them, um, you know, primarily in New Orleans. But it did it did uh, get out of New Orleans, and and there are some structures elsewhere. Donaldsonville is another one. Okay, so we're already with a little bit of a French influence to um, mix up with this. So anyway, well, thank you very much. It's been fascinating. Well, thank you. It was nice to meet you. And you know, it's getting to be it's getting to be the end of the crawfish season. Um, it is it is the end of the crawfish season. Um, I'll probably have to get me some boiled ones before too long. I, I wouldn't wait. I mean, once it's June, you know. So, um, okay. Well, thank you very much, and uh, let's do it again. Okay. I had a great time. Bye. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana.